Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Bread and Butter Emergency Medicine. You're, it's got a name. Everyone gives a little fist pump when I say it. I love it. Uh, we're joined here by the, can I say the illustrious, the illustrious Dr. You Knight. can say whatever you want. People will <laughs> believe what they want to believe. For those of you who didn't catch that last part because of my mumbling, that's Dr. Bill Knight, neurointensivist and ED attending physician at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. We're here today to discuss the topic and chief complaint, that of dizziness. I think one that when I gave some initial discussion with residents about what are some topics they'd like to have covered was almost a unanimous approach of people come in saying they're dizzy. How do we go about evaluating this in the emergency department? And a lot of the format that we've been doing with some of these chief complaints is just put yourself as an inner, your inner intern back in the day. The chief complaint of dizziness pops up on the screen. Take us through your approach, you know, from the EMS bringing in this patient or if it's a family member at bedside, what kind of initial history do you find helpful in evaluating these patients? I think the funny thing about this topic is it pains people so much, everything from everybody from us in the emergency department to the neurology consultants when and if they get one, both in our shop and everywhere else, because it is such a vague complaint that's a high risk, low reward topic, Mm -hmm. meaning when you find something, it could potentially be bad and devastating, but more often than not, it's a fairly benign diagnosis, but you, you have to be mindful of what wades in there. And so when you ask, what do I think of, the first thing I think of either by EMS or family or the patient themselves when they come in is to really quickly scale up by looking at them. Do they, do they look uncomfortable? They look like they're acutely symptomatic. And then can I gauge what their risk factors are right away? Mm-hmm. So if I have a 21-year-old on her phone, eating a bag of chips, drinking a Coke, saying she's been weak and dizzy for three years, that's far different than the 65-year-old who's got his eyes closed, arms on the railings, not moving, and speaking in metered sentences because he feels so awful that he doesn't want to open his eyes or move mm. around. Okay. And so that first you know, oral boards, what do I see when I look in the room, mm-hmm. can weigh very heavily and unfortunately can bias you one way or the other, but can be very sensitive as well in terms of trying to meter what, how do people look? Do they look uncomfortable? Do they look like a true vertigo will look? Even benign vertigo, they'll still look miserable. Mm-hmm. So are they having what we would deem as vertigo, which I know we'll get into, mm-hmm. in terms of, um, or is this something that is just some sort of other feeling, a lightheadedness, mm-hmm. a, an off sensation, or a fullness, or something in the head that makes them feel like they're quote-unquote dizzy, whatever word that they may use. Mm-hmm. You, you painted a good picture, I think, in the ones that would raise more concern for you in the setting of age, other risk factors, things of that setting, are there any particular portions of the history itself that kind of raise the alarm or make you concerned something scary is going on? It all boils back with, I think, that first and foremost, and there is no right answer here, and you can dive through the literature and do this, is what do you mean by dizzy? And so the one thing that we've been shown to really suck at in emergency medicine or as physicians in general is listening to the patient. And they've done studies where they look at how long do we go before we interrupt somebody when they're giving a history. And this is one in particular that you really need to hear them out or stop and reset them in terms of what do you mean by dizzy? Mm -hmm. And then don't put words in their mouth because even just asking them, do you feel like when you're drunk, your drunk may feel different than their drunk. And so, and drunk has a spectrum of everything from feeling a little light to truly vertiginous and room spinning like you're going to fall over. Mm -hmm. And then there have been other studies that show that vertigo in and of itself is not just room spinning. And Mm -hmm. so having them put into 
their own words and, and you really spending time to tease out what do you mean by this? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by dizzy? It can be very frustrating for the patient and for you if you even make it as simple as, I don't know what dizzy is. Tell me what that means. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll take a lot of time to go over or with that. That's the first piece. Find out what that is to try to help me classify in my own head. Do I think it's vertigo or not vertigo? Mm-hmm. And then the second to be, what are the characteristics of that that would make me think bad or not bad? And mm-hmm. that's going to be historical. Is it sudden, acute? Is it more chronic? Is it more subacute? Have they been dealing with it for a couple of months? Did it just come on 15 minutes ago? Was it associated with trauma? Do they have vascular risk factors? And then there's the ever classic, is there anything else associated with the dizzy that would make you think brain vascular or not? Meaning, mm-hmm. do you have numbness, tingling, weakness, speech, vision, trouble walking? Is there something else that goes along with it? Or are you, quote unquote, just dizzy? So gotcha. those are the, I think those are the main ones to, to really simplify it as far as historical and then anything else with, with neuro is timing and then try to localize the lesion. Right. Where's the problem? Okay. Um, is it a peripheral inner ear problem? Or is it something that's more central? Well, I think that's a good point that you make in the setting of letting the patient patient speak their piece. I think it's very easy, especially in the pressure time pressure setting that can be in the ED, to try to put somebody in a binary. Is it this or is it this? And try to categorize that way. It makes it easy to do your presentation to upper-level resident or, or uh, attending in that setting. But I think at the same time can do a disservice, like you're mentioning, to not let them really clarify what they're feeling. Um, That being said, regarding history, also in addition to the physical exam standpoint, are there any particular points you notice that either residents or medical students or in general that we could do better at in uh, the physical exam for dizziness? This is the one complaint of all of them. And even being a neuro guy in emergency medicine, this is the one complaint that the patient needs to be walked, Mm -hmm. period. Um, We don't do that very well. I don't walk every patient. I don't walk every stroke patient. I don't walk every neuro complaint patient probably Mm -hmm. as much as I should. This is the one that if they say that they're dizzy, a simple finger to nose or heel to shin or stretcher based physical exam is not going to cut it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these people, you need to get them up and walk them. Mm -hmm. Now, aside from that, this is if if they're dizzy, you really do want to drill down and do a just a little bit more of a detailed neurologic exam than you would otherwise do. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to check for extraocular movement or nystagmus. Most people are going to do finger to nose to look for ataxia. It's very difficult though when the person sitting still to detect truncal ataxia without getting them up mm-hmm. and then really isolating and testing, testing muscle groups um, or just looking for common drifts of arms and legs, looking for sensory deficits. Because of what you're looking for, dizzy implies if you're worried about bad dizzy, you're worried about cerebellum, therefore posterior fossa, therefore close to the brain stem and some of the arteries that work with that, you really want to test the areas of the brain they are going to give you possible brainstem type findings, mm-hmm. motor sensation, and then vision is another one that you can pick up just with arteries coming off the uh, posterior circulation with the occipital lobes. Gotcha. So again, maybe the visual fields and walking them, I think, are the areas that get real good at doing a good cranial nerve exam mm-hmm. rather than just 2 through 12 or checked and intact. And right. you can do it in about just a couple of minutes, but really focusing on trying to figure out, are you worried about something being something more mm-hmm. while his right arm is weak and he's dizzy, mm-hmm. or he's got a field cut and he's dizzy. That makes you far more down one pathway than another when you find those kind of things. And they can be silent to the patient. Right. And that's, that's what I was going to say is doing the due diligence on exam. I mean, that whole 
mantra you're setting up of the dizzy plus, you know, dizzy plus something else. I think the occult physical examination finding is, is a sneaky one in the sense of a patient hasn't noticed a peripheral visual field deficit or, or what have you. Um, if you're able to pick up on that, I think can be a big game changer in that setting as well. A lot of us will say that Dizzy Plus will, I won't say obligate you, mm-hmm. but almost obligate you to really investigating vascular mm, causes okay. rather yeah. than peripheral. Good thing to keep in mind, I think, when... An inner ear doesn't give you weakness of the arm. Meniere's yeah. disease doesn't give you a speech, you know, aphasia or, you know, something like this. I would hope not, or else I'm in big trouble. Right. I mean, this, yeah. Right. All right. I'm glad I, w- I'm glad I wasn't wrong on that. Um... <laughs> That being said, I mean, between the history and physical exam, you kind of had alluded to this earlier in the setting of what is vertigo, what is dizziness. I think a lot of the common theme that I've seen a lot and where we can kind of fall into that trap of trying to give people one of two options is like, is the room spinning or do you feel lightheaded? It's kind of the common differentiation. Have you found anything, you've mentioned the setting of letting the patient speak for themselves, aside from that, that helps you really kind of go down one path or another? Not really, sadly. And the reason I say that are there's just times, and this comes probably a little bit with experience, where you just get that gut feeling and you you know it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is, again, when you have the 30-year-old sitting there eating and drinking, looking very comfortable, very different even than perhaps the 46-year-old who is just in a minor motor vehicle accident, holding the back of their neck, feeling like they're dizzy, but only use the word lightheaded. And Mm -hmm. that could very well mean that it's vertigo from a dissection causing cerebellar ischemia. So it's trying to risk stratify what you're looking at in the context of your history and getting, getting to the point where you ask very specific questions about diseases that you might be worried about. Is this an 80 year old that you're worried about vertebral basilar insufficiency? Is this a 40 year old that you're worried about a carotid or vertebral artery dissection? Mm -hmm. Um, Is this somebody that might have a brain tumor? Is this somebody who's just intoxicated? And then when you throw in races, cultures, nationalities, language barriers, and then you really find that what you grew up in dizzy means something different than somebody who grew up in a different country Mm -hmm. when the word doesn't even translate right. That's why it's very hard to lock in and say, I found the magic answer to help people define what dizzy is. Mm -hmm. You really have to use that to truly define based on what they're describing you and how you interpret it. Is it something that you become worried on, which is not a very satisfying answer. Sometimes it's very straightforward. Uh, Why, you know, I was walking down the street and then bang out of nowhere. I all of a sudden had the room spinning around me. I threw up and I couldn't even walk straight. It has not remitted since it happened, no matter what my positioning is. Oh, and by the way, I was in a minor vehicle accident a week ago. That's a far different story than somebody who can't even really explain to you what dizzy is. And, well, it's not really like the room is spinning, but kind of is. And we've all been there and seen that. And so it's trying to tease out the features and to determine, is there anything else that makes me more worried? Mm -hmm. Age, diabetes, hypertension, smoking minor trauma, really starting to ask questions. If you think about dissection, it's painful um, because so many things can cause it. Mm -hmm. Everything from mild trauma, sports, coughing, vomiting, chiropractor manipulations, wrestling. I mean, you name it, little Mm -hmm. things can can cause it. And you just have to have almost a little script in your head that when you're asking, if you're worried about dissection, to start running through those things. Because the further you go into no, 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 I haven't had any of that, and the patient looks pretty pretty well and mm-hmm. has a negative neurologic exam, you may be less obligated to go down a, a pathway to investigate vascular yeah. risk factors. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I mean, really, as you're mentioning, the historical findings that would raise concern for that can be numerous. I mean, there's any number of things that can cause it. And the times I have seen a patient with a vascular etiology for this symptom of dizziness, it's oftentimes been surprising to me that that is actually the case. I mean, young, healthy-appearing people with, you know, like you're saying, a very minor traumatic etiology that may 
precipitate this. So it's, I think, a good thing to keep your radar up for this kind of uh, I, problem. I think that's the punchline to your question is that I think a lot of my colleagues would answer the same is the answer is no. There is no clear, easy way to mm -hmm. differentiate what does dizzy mean that makes me worried. Mm -hmm. It's Is the patient worried? Are there features to that, how they're describing their, their, their complaint? Mm -hmm. You trying to help rate that complaint? I vividly remember a guy that that we treated for a stroke who was like mid forties or mid fifties. He was young um, and he was drunk and he was an alcoholic and he mm -hmm. came in drunk and uh, with an alcohol level in the mid two hundreds, um, but said that he was dizzy and mm -hmm. everybody, but one particular physician tried to blow this off. And, and the patient said, look, I know drunk mm -hmm. and this isn't drunk mm -hmm. and this is different. There's something different. And then he had a couple other features that went to it. And the guy was treated for a cerebellar infarct and mm. did, actually did quite well um, okay. after receiving TPA. And so right. having that, it'd be very easy to just write him off and say, oh, he's just drunk because he was drunk and drunk people get dizzy mm -hmm. that he couldn't possibly have a cerebellar infarct, which mm -hmm. is exactly what he had. If you're going to go down that road of working up the patient with that, what, what is your initial approach in terms of diagnostics? This becomes, this is a, an area I think of... Of interesting debate. I wouldn't call it great debate because it really does depend on what you are worried about. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about insufficiency, which is one of the first things you brought up, cranial imaging is useless mm. because you're all worried about vascular. If, you, right. if they're asymptomatic but giving you a history of something that makes you think insufficiency based on positioning or based on certain aspects of when they get their symptoms but they're not necessarily acutely symptomatic right in front of you or it's mild, a head CT in particular or a non-con head CT will be completely worthless. Mm. And you're going to want to, you're going to want to pick imaging based on what you're worried about. Right. In emergency medicine, it's not always that clear cut. Sometimes you're worried about all of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody who's 80 and your, your differential includes everything from a tumor to vascular and therefore maybe cranial imaging is warranted and therefore mm -hmm. you pick the appropriate imaging gotcha. to take it a step back and therefore say, if I have somebody who I'm worried is having a stroke, whether it be ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke, there, even though you, you'll read a lot, well, the head CT is worthless in the workup of dizzy, mm -hmm. the exception of that rule is unless you're worried about a cerebellar infarct. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about an acute cerebellar infarct that you're going to give them TPA for, mm -hmm. you need a CAT scan of the head right. to exclude hemorrhage. And so those people would get a head CT prior to, obviously, the initiation of TPA. Outside of that, what you're then going to do is figure out what are you worried about it and tailor your workup appropriately. If you're worried about a mass and vertebral basilar insufficiency and maybe an occult cerebellar infarct that is, you know, small or recent, MR imaging is going to be your far more preferred imaging because you can knock it all out. You can get tumor, you can get infarct, you can mm -hmm. get uh, vasculature all at one time. Um, a head CT for just the weak and dizzy or just the, the garden variety dizzy is, is very rarely going to be of any real utility. So mm, it does okay. it does depend on what I'm worried about. If it's somebody who's in front of me and isn't just a taxic and room spinning mm. and holding their head and can't sit straight, but they've had some dizziness and some neck pain and I'm worried about a dissection, I don't get a head CT and I get a CTA mm -hmm. of, of their head and neck, but okay. I don't necessarily get the non-con. Unless I think that my consultant or I talk to a consultant wants the non-con for whatever reason prior to getting contrast. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is tailoring it to the actual... Um, disease that I'm worried about. And mm -hmm. you usually, you're rarely down to, well, this might be a dissection or a brain tumor. Right. 
between how the patient presented by acuity or other features to it, and you can you can tailor it that way. Gotcha. But doing a non-con head CT for the just global chief complaint of dizzy is very likely to be low yield. Is this one where you'll get any consulting services like neurology on the phone right away, or do you wait for imaging stuff to come back, or are they even necessary if images are negative? Yeah, that's so that's exactly it, and that, that's where I think this field has evolved probably even in the last ten to fifteen years mm-hmm. about getting that getting the consultant on board early. Think about what you're asking for to get the consultant on board early. If mm-hmm. you get neurology on board early, how is that going to change your management? Mm-hmm. If you're worried about a stroke and you're talking about the administration of TPA, that's the only scenario where I could see getting somebody on board to help or to, to assist in management, depending on where you are and what your resources are, right. would be of some utility. Anything else, dissections, masses, you name it, mm-hmm. the consultant doesn't help you without the diagnosis. Right. And you're, I say this somewhat t- tongue-in-cheek, you're just as skilled as they are as coming up with the diagnosis, unless there's a particular question that you have about the workup. Perhaps right. it's somebody who is has renal insufficiency and can't get a CTA and your MRI can't happen for two days, then maybe, and it's somebody who's too high risk to go home that you need to facilitate getting that testing done, right. either as an outpatient or an inpatient, especially a specialist will help you. Gotcha. But just to rule out dissection, radiology helps you rule out dissection, right. not necessarily a neurologist or a specialist. Mm-hmm. Same thing with, would you ever call a neurosurgeon before you had a mass in the back of the head and you'd find it first. And so, right. No, I, I tend to. Now, I think the real question you're asking is, is do you ever use neurology to help distinguish between benign causes of vertigo mm-hmm. and and central or more significant? Yeah, I mm-hmm. do. And that just depends on sometimes you have people that are just more challenging based on history and physical exam and, and having a an expert to help facilitate and work that up does become very helpful. Yeah. And those are going to be case-specific points. Maybe it's a language barrier. Maybe it's an unusual physical exam. Maybe it's right. a functional exam. Maybe it's a confounding exam. And then to help determine, because not everything is tumor or stroke. There's a lot of other things that give us right. uh, ataxia or dizziness or other features like that. And they can be very helpful to help pick up some of those things. Things right. like even Parkinson's can present with dizziness yeah. or postural, you know, orthostasis or things like that can, mm-hmm. that can be very helpful with. So it depends. Right. And I think you bring up a good point in the sense of, you know, a lot can vary based on your available resources and, and really kind of how complex is this issue. Like you're saying, if this is Parkinsonism presenting with dizziness, I mean, there's any number of things that would go into helping that patient for, for management that I mean, we may not have all that available no. in the ED. And so I think getting that started can be helpful in that setting too. Or we might have a plan that they can facilitate a better plan. We may right. think they have yeah. to come in and a specialist can help you arrange the outpatient follow-up or mm-hmm. help educate you to the fact that the patient doesn't need what you think that they need and, yeah. and really help with that overall disposition plan. Yeah, so, so it does it does depend on, on what exactly I'm worried about. But mm-hmm. the idea of, of benign versus central vertigo, the answer is sometimes I think yeah. it is beneficial to have them help. Well, and taking a step back, I mean, going back to the beginning when we were first speaking, you kind of painted that picture of that 65-year-old guy grabbing the railings, eyes closed, vomiting maybe, not being able to speak much to you, be it a very concerning, essential cause of vertigo or even peripheral in that setting, do you have any tips or tricks for symptomatic management? Um, I, I remember my first patient with a similar presentation. I was kind of struck with really how little I knew about how to manage these symptoms. Um, do you have anything that's been particularly helpful? It depends on the etiology, but yeah. there are, let's, let's start with kind of the, let's say that it's a pretty clear-cut case of benign positional vertigo mm-hmm. or, or, or a, a meniere's or an inner ear problem, a labyrinthitis or something like that. And you're pretty, for whatever reason, you're pretty convinced of what it is. I tend to lean more towards just oral medications of meclizine and Valium. Mm-hmm. I would say that those two 
medications with no particular preference or order um, work in 90% of situations, it seems like anecdotally. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have patients you give them to and they're still miserably symptomatic, you escalate with a little bit of, for whatever reason, it cures everything, volume um, (laughs) and uh, Zofran, just antiemetics um, to get people symptomatically under control from the nausea component of the vertigo. Outside of that, uh, and then tips and physical tricks to help that, that positional person mm-hmm. not exacerbate their symptoms, moving slowly, how do they rise from a laying or seated position? Obviously, the appropriate follow-up for ENT, but I would say the answer to your question is meclizine Valium. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a stroke, that it's a cerebellar infarct, those are really, really, really hard to control, mm-hmm. but it, it does become better over time as, uh, I don't know if it's because the patient gets used to it, but I think still think antiemetics are the cornerstone of that treatment, mm. but in particular, non-sedating antiemetics. Gotcha. Because if you have a big cerebellar infarct, or if you have a cerebellar infarct, that's one of the true classic neurosurgical emergencies, and you're going to be watching for sleepiness. So you don't want to right. artificially alter your exam with a sedating medication if you can avoid it. So poor form to knock out your patient if they're yeah. concerned. You'll get them a craniectomy. You'll, you'll get them an operation. So Zofran, yeah. I think, is a great drug for okay. those people. Yeah. Um, depending on the patient and, low, you know, in certain doses, Phenergan can be okay. But, again, you have to watch the, the sedating. Other than that, no magic treatment. Uh, Meclizine, Valium. Antimedics mm-hmm. uh, are where I go. And most people get pretty good relief with meclizine and, and Valium. Dr. Knight brings up some good points regarding the initial therapy for patients suffering from symptoms of vertigo. You can use three different types of medications to try to help out these patients. Antihistamines being a first line, uh, meclizine being one of the medications of this class that will use at our institution. You can also try diphenhydramine or Benadryl to help out with these symptoms too. Uh, you can also, in addition or sequentially, try benzodiazepines, Valium being one of those medicines that we'll use at our institution to help. And then antiemetics is another good cornerstone of therapy to help with the nausea and vomiting that can ensue with vertigo. It's important to keep in mind that you may want to use Zofran or other non-sedating form of antiemetics if you're concerned about the patient's mental status in the setting of their vertigo. Something to keep in mind. Well, Dr. Knight, thank you again so much for joining us for this. Yeah. Do, do you have any last pieces of advice for everyone about uh, about dizziness or about anything else we've talked about today? I yeah. think the biggest piece is to not rely on pure and simple cat scan of the head to reassure yourself that mm, there's not okay. something more um, significant uh, causing the symptoms. It's not all about positioning. People can who are still having cerebral infarcts can... Um, uh, have symptoms exacerbated by a Dick's Hall Peck maneuver. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is it's more constant symptoms usually rather than the waxing and waning component. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what reassures a lot of us is, again, age and risk factors, but it becomes a lot harder when they're 80 and diabetic and hypertensive. But if they're 30 years old and they get markedly symptomatic with a Dick's Hall Pike and then asymptomatic when it stops, you feel a lot better with that and can educate them a little bit better. But the mm-hmm. uh, the older the patient, the more risk factors they have, the more cautious you need to have, and then the mm. more targeted your workup needs to be to include everything from imaging to consultants. Gotcha. I think that would be the punchline that I would leave us on that. Cool. All right. Well, we thank you again, and we'll talk to you all next time. My pleasure.